Blog Talk Radio. October 23rd, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and if you run over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see I've got the title of today's show as Don't Let It Go Reprise, and every so often I revisit some themes within the essay that inspired the name of this show. That essay is called Don't Let It Go by Ayn Rand, and it's in the book Philosophy Who Needs It. In essence, the it in Don't Let It Go is the uniquely American sense of life. And in the essay, what Rand does is in effect paint sort of an impressionistic picture of what the American sense of life is, because she describes it by giving a series of examples of the uniquely American sense of life and contrasts it with the European, there were some themes that came up uh, in connection to some of the stories that I've got for you over in the program notes. I think all of them actually I'm going to end up tying in to this to this kind of theme, but it has to do with cynicism, with moral outrage, with, with giving a damn about what's right and what's wrong in the world in connection with of uh, you know various of the stories there and also initiative taking initiative in your life so a number like I said a number of the themes that Rand talks about in the essay don't let it go are relevant to these stories and almost I almost uh, you know I was, I was talking with a friend I almost called the show um was was it uh oh yeah da- it's damned if you don't care right if, if you don't care if you end up kind of collapsing in cynicism and not caring about what is right in some of these situations, just kind of giving up and accepting the status quo, what you end up giving up on, as my friend was discussing, is yourself. And I don't have in the program notes, there's a quotation that had come to mind uh, from Ayn Rand. You know, I have all these quotations floating in my mind because I made that Ayn Rand bot. And I actually pulled the quotations myself from various readings and, and I, you know, reshuffle the databases and send them out there every so often. So I have this exposure and I go and look at them and retweet them every so often as well. If you don't follow it already, by the way, follow the Ayn Rand bot on Twitter. You just never know having a quotation of hers thrown in your face that at some random time might stir a productive thought process for you. You just don't know about that. Check it out. In any event, the one that I was thinking about uh, was one 
she she says something, you know, I am no good can be uttered only in the past tense in the sense of don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on improving yourself and making you and, and your life better. And, you know, isn't it true when people kind of shrug and just say, okay, Weinstein, you know, that's just part of what Hollywood is, you know, then it's politics too, you know, in politics, they have the, you know, sleep your way to the top and all that kind of stuff with some of the politicians as well. So it's just, you know, it's just kind of life. It's not a big scandal. It's nothing new. We should have all expected it. A lot of people knew about it. That cynical attitude, you know, dismissing some of the people who have come forward with the, the Me Too. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So there's cynicism there. Uh, there is also, I think, a cynicism among Donald Trump followers. So, yeah, people who don't want me to talk about Donald Trump, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about him a little bit again. Because, again, this morning I was railed by them. Uh, Trump continues to tweet about the NFL thing, and I continue to respond. And people come continue to respond to me, basically saying, you know, isn't it horrible that these players are taking a knee? And they are. They're showing disrespect for the country and everything else, for the flag. And, in, in effect, they're saying it really doesn't matter that Trump might be tweeting in an inappropriate, overbearing, authoritative way. Uh, and I should just set all that aside. I shouldn't sit here and complain about this because the real big fish to fry is that there is an employer in this country allowing the NFL players to show disrespect for a majority of citizens. So there's that. Uh, I've got an interesting couple little comments on the Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin, Ankar Gatte panel that was at Clemson at the end of last week. Awesome panel. But Peterson in particular said something that stuck with me and is tied into this theme as well. I've got what other tweets I can show you. You know, I continue all the time to go out there on Twitter and be the defiant person that I am. Why? Part of it ties into what Peterson said, but we're going to get into a little bit of that as well. I'm not going to belabor it. I really want to only talk about Trump today insofar as it ties into this this theme, this idea that we're not going to criticize and hold him to certain standards because, oh, you know, it's it's just politics and he's so much better than the other people, right? Then we've got this Russia inquiry that is maybe going to crash and burn and what are the reasons for that? This also ties into the theme. As I said, Initiative, GFDA, has a little bit of weekly advice, so I brought them back this week. Ted Cruz, talking about relisting North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism, also ties into the theme of a cer- uh, to a certain extent. And for me personally, this story that Rob Aviera sent me about big data in China how China is going to start rating its citizens. Talk about that a bit as well. Got a Duran Duran song that ties into the theme. I'm on a Duran Duran kick. Talk about that a little bit as well. So that's kind of a preview, a little rundown of all the program notes. If anything in there appeals to you and you want to talk about it, maybe you also watched that Clemson panel and you had some things within it that struck you as well. I thought that was a great little panel a great great event that they put on over there Uh, kudos to see bradley thompson who just does so much good work for getting that together call in 
760-888-5817 is the number. Welcome to all of you who are over in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. i got Dale, who isn't there so often. We have our Chief Justice, John Roberts. Ha ha, choke, choke, choke. Uh, Rob is there. Rob, thank you, Josh. Welcome. And some guests are hanging out as well. Selfishness. Hi, hi, hi. So, yeah, do call in if you want to talk about any of these items. But let's go in first to the latest on this Harvey Weinstein. What I've been seeing out there, a few things in, just in terms of developments in the story itself. Uh, there was one headline about how Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are saying, yeah, we knew about this. And so they're actually going out and saying, yeah, we did know about it as well. Um, Weinstein apparently went to an outpatient treatment program of some kind. I, I don't know what it was he thought he was being treated for on an outpatient basis in one week for a pattern of despicable behavior over decades. And somehow, you know, they say, oh, well, he took it very seriously. If he's really, as that Daily Wire story had talked about last week, if he's really planning a comeback already, he's plotting some kind of comeback, that is really, really gross, right? That's truly disgusting, That the idea that he's going to come and, you know, have some kind of comeback. But I don't know, are, are people so cynical out there that they're just saying, okay, well, you know, this is just part of the landscape. This is just what we expect of men today? Um, are people just making it an issue of politics where you say, okay, well, this is Hollywood and there's a whole bunch of liberals in there and it's really only liberals who have gotten hurt by this, so we really don't care? Um, are people saying, and I heard this discussed as well, um, that maybe because He's Jewish. You don't want to criticize him too much because, you know, but, you know, for me, I wouldn't even imagine that that would be a motive because the thing that I always see in the news is that there's so much anti-Semitism. But it, are people so cynical that it's like they're becoming really tribal about this? I have a story that I posted on social media and I went ahead and stuck it in the program notes. It happens to be that the author is a, a woman named Amy, Amy Swear. And she, her headline is, I'm a conservative who was roofied by a stranger. Here's what I think of the Me Too hashtag. And roofied, for people who don't know, just means to be uh, given a particular drug that makes you, I guess, unaware of everything going on around you. I forget the which benzo something, whatever drug. Um it's very common. They talk about the date rape drug, you know, people slip it in your drink and then suddenly 12 hours are just gone. And she said that she was, you know, basically she went to the bar. She's going to have just one drink. And she said the next 12 hours are black. She says not figuratively black, but literally black. They do not exist in my mind except for a handful of hazy dreamlike snapshots of contextless moments toward the beginning and end of that period. So she uh, was drugged by a stranger and apparently sexually assaulted, maybe raped, et cetera. She doesn't 
I think, talk too much about the specifics because there's an ongoing criminal case. But in this article, her whole point is that Me Too transcends politics. This is not some thing that you say, okay, well, this is all about liberals. This is all about just going out and um, embracing the victim mentality and everything like this. It is talking about the prevalence of this particular issue. Um, And the people that she's speaking out against, she says, I'm referring to people who, without an ounce of empathy, callously dismiss stories shared under the Me Too hashtag. The ones whose arguments can fairly be characterized as, quote, if you were really assaulted, you would have gone to the police. You would drop names and raise hell until you got justice. But you either weren't victimized or you are complicit in all the other assaults that came after you. Um, most of these women posting Me Too are exaggerating for attention or because they want to demonize men. There is no rape epidemic and women sometimes lie. So most of these women are lying too, end quote. This is the sort of arguments that you've seen out there, right? And I talked a bit about this last week where there are people who have not been in this situation probably, uh, or, you know, maybe people who have been in the situation would say the same thing, but they will tell you that you have a duty to come forward at a particular time in a particular way if you are to be believed, if your story is to be treated as valuable in any way. Um, there's these rules that are that are put up to you. And, and I say, look, if we're talking about assault, if we're talking about rape, if we're talking about an initiation of force against these women, and we'll say women, you know, for now, talk about that men sometimes as well. But the situation, as I argued before, is different for women who have been assaulted by men because the strongest women can be overpowered by men who, statistically speaking, aren't, aren't as strong, you know, in, in terms of the male sex. So it is really different for women in the sense of they're more vulnerable to being physically overpowered. And so therefore this happens more commonly to women. So this is why I'm talking about it more. It's not like I don't believe that sometimes men aren't assaulted. Of course, men are sometimes assaulted and terrorized and everything else. They're treated horribly sometimes. But, you know, here here we're talking about Hollywood actresses and these producers and directors who have exploited them. That's the, you know, the instigation. And, and there's a whole bunch of women coming forward with this. So here they are. They have been victims of horrible, demeaning, traumatizing crimes where you actually have this initiation of force against them, right? They, they don't have to embrace the victim mentality for you to say, yes, they were actually victims of a crime. So how are you going to tell them what way it is that they're supposed to process it, what way they are, you know, what their duty is with respect to how they tell their story or if they tell their story at all. As again, as I argued last week, unless you are actually, um, you know, doing an injustice to somebody else and like Amy uh, in this piece, you know, the author of this piece said, 
she said, you know, as long as you are not demon, you know, demonizing men across the board, or as long as you are not unjustly naming a particular man without providing evidence and details and all that, as long as you are not committing an injustice against anybody else, then who is anyone to tell you the way in which you should come forward? And about this idea of, oh, well, don't really believe them or anything else, this this is the thing, okay? A woman will have to look at her particular situation, whatever it is that happened to her, and say in her own mind, yes, you know, however muddled and bizarre that whatever the situation was that she was in, and there can be molestation and date rapes and all kinds of stuff that is really confusing for the victim sometimes at the time, right? Whatever situation she's in, she clearly says, look, it was clear in the context that this conduct was not consented to. It was not welcome. It was made clear in that context. Any reasonable person in that context should have known that this contact, this sexual contact was not welcome. And yet the person persisted and overpowered me. And that, you know, is what the woman says in the situation. And that's when you do the me too, right? That's when you say, okay, me too. Now, obviously in each situation, the woman has to just say, okay, you know, do I honestly say this, this was my situation. This is what happened to me. And then when she does that, why don't you take her at her word? There have been cases sometimes of women lying perhaps, right? About this, but about any particular woman who comes out with a me too, first of all, you know, today in some circles, they're opening themselves up for a world of hell. If they don't come out, you know, and name names and give details in certain ways, then people are going to dismiss their stories and all this stuff. But, you know, why wouldn't you just take that person at their word and say, okay, you know, what, what motive would someone have for coming forward? Now, mind you, maybe some do, they come forward and they say, okay, you know, you should feel sorry for me and, you know, treat me with kid gloves and do all this stuff. But I don't think that most women who are coming forward with this are, are doing this. And why should you think that again, unless you have a history with a person where the person's like, okay, um, you know, you know about this person that they've maybe done this in the past, all these plays for sympathy and everything else, then do it fine. But if they don't have any history of that, and they are just telling you that, yes, in my experience, I was overpowered. Someone used force against me in order to have sexual contact. It's in this context where any reasonable person should know it's not consented to, maybe in the case of a child, right, a child who's molested. A child cannot give consent. Um, you know, in the case of somebody being roofied, obviously there's no consent there. That's crazy. Um or in other situations where the woman has clearly said no, you know, date rape situation, maybe, uh, you know, initially the woman was somewhat interested but didn't want to have sex at that particular point, and here's the guy forcing it on her. She knows she clearly said no in the situation. Any reasonable person should know that, no, you don't push it that far. Um, in any event, that's the question. And then, then why not take the women at their word? So here's this conservative woman who felt that she had to come out and speak up for all of the women 
who did this and say, look, this is not a political situation. She says, you don't understand the sickening internal debate over whether and how and when and to what extent you should tell your parents. You don't understand the utter humiliation of being unable to recall any interactions you've had in the past 12 hours. You don't know how, you don't know how incredibly small you feel when your first real memory is of a doctor you've never seen before accusing you of smoking crystal meth because your ADD medication showed up as amphetamine on a toxicology screen and you can barely find words to ask where you are, much less to explain that you've never done drugs. You know, what if you were just drunk and all this kind of stuff? Um, but in any event, she, you know, she goes, comes forward and she speaks out. There's one, um, there is one quotation that I wanted to pull from this, and let me see if I've got it in the original social media post here. Yeah, she says, when someone confides in you that they were roofied, assaulted, molested, raped, or harassed, they have rendered themselves the most vulnerable they will likely ever be to you. Do not presume to sit in judgment of a person's reaction to a horror you can never understand until you have lived it. And again, understanding her is not giving a license to go out and play the victim for your entire life. At the same time, like I said, in this context where you're talking about people coming forward and saying me too, you have to really be careful about the idea that you're going to give some rules to how they can do it. As I said, if you're going, you know, this is not an excuse and, and, you know, this author, Amy agrees that this is not an excuse to malign the entire male sex, um, and that's, of course, I don't think the purpose of most women who post Me Too. Um, so you can't do that, obviously. And you can't go out and say, oh, I'm just a victim and that's all I am. That's what defines me. And you can't go out there and name a name and smear somebody's character without providing proper evidence. I mean, basically, I would say you'd want to give the equivalent of what you'd have in a court of law to prosecute someone but otherwise not the rules. Uh, Joel, when I posted this, thank him for his comment. He, he said to me, he said, thank you for posting this. He says, I'm utterly dismayed by the disgusting tribalism displayed by many people who I often agree with politically, but perversely want to pile shame on victims for speaking out as if this were just another round in the left-right battle. As the article says, stop it, just stop it. So, the, you know, this is not, this is not just another round in the left-right battle. Yes, Hollywood is full of leftists. That's true. But I'm really glad to see that some of the better right-wingers, and as, you know, uh, again, this author, um, Amy Swearer, in this piece over at the Daily Signal, she also calls out a couple of the better conservatives. Michael Knowles, who unfortunately I'm not familiar with, but Ben Shapiro, of course I am, she says they've offered honest and thoughtful concerns about the hashtag. And there are concerns about the hashtag, right? Um, is the hashtag being used to prop up the idea of harassment law, sexual harassment law? As I talked about last week, I disagree that sexual harassment per se should be actionable. It's bad. It should be criticized. But we need to not make you know, not give any credence to the idea of sexual harassment law. It would be horrible 
if they came down with like some new sexual harassment law in Hollywood or something because of this. Let's call it out as a culture. Let's humiliate those who commit these things as a culture. Let's boycott. But, you know, don't make this into a legal thing. The victim mentality part, of course, is a concern, and, and so is the condemning of the entire you know, male sex because of this. It's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, keep our, keep our heads about, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't just dismiss this as she says another round or as, excuse me, as Joel says as another round in the left, right battle, because it's not that it's not just that it is a chance to look at the type of culture that condones this to condemn it, to make a resolve in your own mind, to educate your children, for example, um, if you have female children, to make them aware of the different situations that could put you in danger of being a victim of this type of conduct so that you can give them a better chance, you know, say that you've had of not being a victim of it. So educate, right? Um, you can also use it, of course, as an opportunity to help the women who have been through this sort of heal to a certain extent as well. Um, if they feel that they can come forward and tell their stories or, you know, even if all they do is they just put a Me Too out there, then at least they feel like, okay, they've gone through like another layer of, of revisiting and healing and making an experience like that less traumatic for them you know they, they, they always talk about um, you know time healing wounds and stuff and it's not just time it's it's revisiting things at the proper time and the proper way and all that kind of stuff there's a lot of good that can be done with this um, and one of the things that would make me tie this into the don't let it go theme per se is the idea that at least in United States there seems from what I'm hearing to be more outrage over this with Harvey Weinstein than in Europe. Obviously it's not universal. There is an element in American culture who has been inclined to dismiss this more cynically as part of the left right battle and to not take seriously again, the people who come forward or to judge them based on whether they name names and do all those different things. And I think that some of that is rooted in uh, cynicism, uh, cynicism, excuse me, that's been seeping into the American culture. You know, Rand wrote the essay Don't Let It Go in 1971. But in that essay, she contrasts the difference between the Americans and the Europeans in this regard. And from what I'm hearing, European uh, Europeans have been more likely to dismiss this as, oh, well, this is just business as usual. This is to the, you know to be expected that there's the casting couch culture in Hollywood and all this. I mean, you know, who's surprised? This is not news. Let's go on to the next thing. So the fact that there is a significant amount of outrage in the United States and that there is from people like Shapiro and, you know, this Amy Swear and some other commentators, that there is real intelligent commentary about this, um, really, really looking at what is it that is the benefit of bringing this out and exposing it and criticizing the behavior and everything else. What is What can we learn from this? 
how can the culture get better? How can we improve? I, it, I think it's a really good sign, right? So we could say, okay, it's, it's a sign that the American sense of life is alive and well, that at least some people within American culture are taking this seriously and realizing that the problem needs to be looked at and addressed outside of politics, that it's not, you know, again, yeah, a lot of leftists in Hollywood, but we can sometimes divorce ourselves from the politics of it and look at it, you know, in as just elements of the human experience, things that happen both amongst conservatives, liberals, libertarians, whatever everybody wants to call themselves. So that's that's really the the first thing. Now, what I have in the program notes for those, if any woman who listens to this show again, I, and, and when I've posted this elsewhere, I've said I do not want this to be self-selecting. I have a survey that I put together. In uh, there's a thing called um, what do you call it? It's called Survey Monkey. I think it's called Survey Monkey. Yeah. So it's I, I put the survey together. It's not the most professional survey because I don't do this very often, but I have modified it a little bit. So I think I've improved upon it since I got some initial feedback from early respondents and stuff. And I call it a Me Too survey. And what I'm interested in, only women, but any woman, any woman who's listening to this show, if you could take the time to go and get the link to that survey in my program notes at don'tletitgo.com. The survey just takes you a couple minutes and it's just asking have you been the victim of actual sexual assault? It's not about harassment, right? It's not about harassment. It is about assault. And um, then it goes on to ask you questions like, have you gone to the police? And if you haven't, why not? And are you intending to come out on social media? Or have you come out on social media under the Me Too hashtag? And if you haven't, why haven't you? And if you have... Do you name names? Why or why not? It, for me, it, and it's purely anonymous, so anybody can answer this, and, and there's not going to be any information revealed about you, um, certainly not by me. And so what I want to do is just try to understand more how prevalent the problem is. I'm trying to get sort of a scientific read on it, and you know, as much as I can with the survey that I post out there. And at the same time, try to understand the thought process of women who either do come forward and talk about their experiences or don't. Because as I said, I have the view that once you've been this victim of initiation of force, it's similar, you know, when Rand talks about morality ends where a gun begins, you have been this victim of a forcible act. Your rights have been violated. It's a particularly traumatizing type of rights violation because it has to do with your sexuality and your you know experience and attitudes towards it and everything else and your attitude towards yourself what do you think of yourself you know read Amy Swearer's article if you want her perspective on that type of experience she's very articulate um, I'm, I'm interested you know just to see how women who listen to my show who follow me on Facebook and everything else how they would process experiences like this let me tell you, I've got a significant number of responses, but I can still get a lot more in. SurveyMonkey limits me to 100. And when I first sent the link out, I sent it in a very limited 
distribution. So maybe that'll fill up now if, if some of the women who listen and haven't done it yet actually go and, and do the survey. But of the respondents I've had so far, it's a very steady 55%. 55% have said that someone has used force to try to have sexual contact with them. That's, I don't know if it's higher than you expect, but it's pretty high. And it's certainly higher than we would want as a culture. Again, imagine you're, this is the situation where it's clear that the sexual contact is unwanted and hasn't been consented to. You know, again, in the case of a child who isn't capable of giving proper consent or somebody who's too impaired, either because you drug them or because you know that they're completely wasted on alcohol or whatever, why? You know, why would you pursue in that kind of situation? So you know the consent isn't there and you use force to overpower the person to pursue it anyway. That's the situation that I'm talking about and that's the situation that these women are, are talking about in the survey. 55% sometime in their lifetime have been a victim of this. So um, keep those responses coming in. I will talk about the results as I get closer. Uh, looks like we're getting in some new responses even as I'm talking about it. So that's wonderful. So thank you for helping me with your survey uh, or with my survey so I can learn more ab about the situation. Um, and yeah, you can get, if you guys ever want to look at some of these stories that I'm sharing when I'm not on the air, you, you go ahead and follow me on Facebook. I usually share big news stories publicly and stuff. And thanks to those of you who comment and, and share those there. Back to the program notes, right? Where am I? Oh, it's already half hour. I'm not surprised that I, I would wax on about this a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, really, really, let's not be cynical about it and not being cynical about this, not being resigned to having this as part of our culture of using a situation like this where Weinstein is exposed and humiliated as an opportunity for improvement and discussion and people growing and some people healing and all of those things that just sound really trite to you. They're true. Um, that can be done. And it doesn't have to be embracing you know, an all-encompassing victim mentality. It just happens to be this opportunity that is, has arisen because of the exposure of this despicable guy doing horrible things to these victims over the years. And no, you know, don't judge them for their way of dealing with it necessarily, particularly the ones that were overpowered with force, right? Um, some of the stories are, are pretty horrific that are out there. So I'm going to play you guys a little bit of music, take a drink of water, and we will go on to the next story that I've got in the program notes. Again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you'll see all the stories. Okay, so we are back, and 
as I said, one of the things I did want to just tie into this theme is the cynicism that I see in some Trump supporters. And, you know, this is you, first of all, there's people who still believe, and I, I don't see how you can still believe this, but people do. People believe that somehow we're in for something better, significantly better under Trump than if we had had Hillary. And I'm no longer convinced of that. I had thought when Trump was elected that maybe he would be slightly better. I knew Hillary was horribly corrupt and everything else. And I thought, okay, maybe this guy's going to be slightly better. But there are people who think that he is going to be significantly better for our country, that we're going to get some real pro-free market policies and everything else. The, some of the stuff about the tax cuts maybe sounds a little bit optimistic. Some of the regulations that he's rolled back sounds good. But I don't think health care is going to go anywhere. His policies are going to be mixed at best and probably aren't going to be that much better than what we would get under Hillary Clinton, right? And, you know, where we, I mean, at least under Clinton, we'd probably have gridlock because we'd have the Republican House and the Senate really fighting her but we don't know what we're going to get. And whatever we get is going to be blamed on supposedly trying conservatism slash capitalism slash free market slash whatever they, you know, whatever they want to call it this week. And the reaction, what we would get on the other side, if we're going to get Bernie Sanders or as somebody said, whatever the youthful, um, you know, counterpoint counter counterpart of, of Sanders is, we may not get Sanders. Sanders might be, you know, too old to come in the next time, but we might get a real socialist in reaction to Trump because Trump is not principled. He He's not principled in any event. So people think this, right? And they think, okay, you know, he, whatever it is that he's tweeting out there, you don't take him seriously. Um, doesn't he have First Amendment rights? He can just speak like anybody else in our country and he can just go out there as president and speak exactly the way that any critical citizen would speak. And everyone should just accept it and say, okay, well, this is just part of having Donald Trump because after all, you know, he's patriotic. He believes in putting America first. He's so much better than Hillary. He's not establishment. He's fighting the establishment. He's fighting the leftists or whoever else he's fighting that's what I mean by the the cynical, the, the willing to accept, the willing to give a pass to a lot of things that Trump is doing, that if Barack Obama had done them, you would not give a pass to at all. So, for example, if Barack Obama was going out tweeting every single day about the people kneeling at the NFL or whatever, um, then people would criticize him. And I remember, and I've talked about this before, I remember when the Attack Watch website was launched, where you were supposed to go there and report your friends who said, quote, inaccurate things of Barack, about Barack Obama. Remember, you were supposed to do that. And, oh, boy, conservatives, it was beautiful to watch the defiance on Twitter. They were funny and they put these videos together oh attack watch and it was it was hysterical it was great it was so wonderful to watch and now when you know draw i would call him real donald trump because that's his handle on twitter when donald trump goes out there 
and purports to tell the NFL what their policy should be or, you know, writes in a, in a tweet imperative, stand for the flag, you know, exclamation point, telling people what to do, like some dictator or whatever. We're supposed to just accept it and dismiss it and not say anything about it. Don't speak up because after all, at least now we have this president who loves our country, America first and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sorry, that's just not the case. You don't sit there and just kind of put your ideas about what is proper for a president to do aside because you happen to think that whoever it is right now is what, you know, part of your party, you need to support your party, um, you're going to be supporting, you know, for, for example, if I say that Trump shouldn't tweet this way, everybody thinks that I um, am on the side of the NFL players who are kneeling. Right. And am I on the side of the NFL players that kneel if I decide to hold Donald Trump to a standard of what is proper in a, in a presidential tweet? I don't think so. I don't I don't see how that follows at all. Um, the, the, the problem for me is the way that he tweets about it before when the NFL story was around and a couple guys were kneeling and stuff. I thought, well, I wouldn't kneel and that's pretty disrespectful and I'm not an NFL consumer anyway. So what do I care? But once he started tweeting and once he started as president purporting to say how this should happen. Now people come back to me all the time. They say, well, where is he forcing anybody to do anything? He has first amendment rights like anybody else. I don't know how to make it clearer time. And again, I've talked about this. He's a president, and he does have power to force certain things to happen in the world, unfortunately. And we've seen that with Obama. We have seen Obama use the power that he had to go after political enemies and everybody else, right, with the IRS and stuff. So there are things that Trump can do. And to me, this tweeting out there, is no different. And people used to criticize this and people always criticize this. You know, Barack Obama used to call business leaders to his office and have conversations with them. And everybody knew that if Obama was telling business leaders the type of stuff that he'd like to see them do, everybody knew that implicitly in the background was this threat that, well, if you don't do what I want to do voluntarily, just because I'm telling you that I want it now, then I can get some regulations passed or figure out how to do something to force you to do what I want. Right. Um, they use the bully pulpit first. So there is an implicit threat back here. He's got power in part, thanks to the expansion of executive power under Barack Obama, he's got power to do things. And so, you know, if you think, well, he's just tweeting and he's just speaking like everybody else and, you know, it's uh, it's all about the NFL is disrespecting their customers and everything else. It's not about that. For me, again, this whole thing is about Trump improperly tweeting about this whole thing time and time again, sometimes with imperative orders, you know, telling what the policy should be, telling the players to stand, and the whole you know, the magnitude of this is like an implicit threat. I can imagine a proper president like a Reagan or something say, 
you know, during a speech, I could see him giving it aside. Isn't it sad that, you know, our NFL players do this or something, right? Just a comment like that. I don't think it's completely inappropriate for a president to make a comment about how sad it is that there's, you know, an, a disrespectful element in the culture or something. Okay. You know, obviously the, the president is somebody who is going to be patriotic, hopefully, and, and have this true feeling and respect for country and is going to be saddened by watching something like that. But that's not what Trump has done here. And in fact, sometimes I think he keeps tweeting about this because he's trying to distract from other things like the conversation with the um, the widow um, of the fallen soldier, right, that's been in the news. So, you know, I, I, I question his motives, but I can't go so much into the motives all the time. Sometimes I do. I've got this tweet out there. He he, t- he tweeted just the other day randomly after there's been months of discussion about this, and then he tweets how subject to further information, he's going to release the JFK files or whatever. And the first thing that came to mind is from up, you know, the little dog, squirrel, squirrel. It's like, you know, let's distract people. So I think he's doing that sometimes, but it's not the thing that I'm going to hammer so hard all the time. The thing that I'm going to hammer so hard is that it's inappropriate to try to coerce respect, shows of respect for a flag for the country and everything else. If, you know, you order the players to stand and they stand, that's not respect. You know, there's the psychological thing that if you force people to go through the motions, eventually they're going to end up believing it. And that's something we'll talk about with Peterson in a second. But you are not going to get real free choice intellectual respect for flag and country by ordering it to happen. You know, Trump this morning, he says, two dozen NFL players continue to kneel during the national anthem, showing disrespect to our flag and country. No leadership in NFL, exclamation point. My answer, or leadership that realizes real respect for our flag and country must come from within, that motions performed under threat mean nothing. And they don't. And that's the thing I want to have people realize. Not that I have ever been in favor of kneeling for the anthem, not until Trump started doing this. And now, of course, like I said, I feel like I, I almost feel like I'm going to just go to an NFL game for the first time in my whole life just to go kneel. And I have to bring a bodyguard or something because these people don't understand what my motive is, but I've, I've explained it as much as I can out there. My motive is that our president needs to respect the core value of reason, of free will, of free choice on which our country was based, and that that is the fundamental. You're not going to make America great while undermining this idea of free will and free choice and the use of reason to pursue your own happiness, you know, that respect even for the country has, has got to be earned and it can't be forced. It, it, you know, it can't. The dictators are the ones that order you to do this. Craig in the chat room says, such respect is good enough for the godfather. And earlier he'd made a comment as well that I wanted to get to. He said, Trump is the best thing that ever happened to American socialists. That's the fear, right? That's the fear is that it's going to kick back that way. And it would do it even if he wasn't doing some of this tweeting and stuff. Why? Because he doesn't have any principles and he's got... The, such a mixed policy, but he, I believe, again, he, you know, he's, he's 
speaking inappropriately, and I believe it is important to call him on it. If I talk to some of these people on Twitter who are criticizing me for this, um, you know, basically ask them, what would you do with Obama if Obama was tweeting this? I assume that they would hold him to task if it was Obama. But instead, I get questions like this. A woman, Linda, says, in your employment history, were you allowed to openly show disrespect to a majority of clients? Now, you know, is the player who kneels at an anthem at the NFL showing a disrespect to a majority of clients? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on at all. How are you showing disrespect to a majority of clients? It's something that they're protesting about. I think any reasonable person would not take that as disrespect. The person's making some kind of protest. And, you know, again, maybe it ties into something. I I shared a clip from Yaron Brook the other day, and it was – you know, about this issue of immigration and people are scared of allowing into our country people who disagree with certain ideas. And, you know, they, it, he shows, you know, what your own was saying is that it's a lack of confidence in your ability to convince somebody else of the truth of your ideas, that your ideas are good. And I think there's the same thing here. You know, why are you so threatened? When some NFL player, you know, and you know, most of the NFL players, they don't spend their time thinking about ideas in a deep way. I'm sorry, that's a generalization, but it's because they have to spend so much time focusing on physical performance in their sport and memorizing, you know, doing all things. They they spend the majority of their time in this realm of, of mastering the sport. And I don't, you know, from what I've seen, there are a few, there are a few who seem to have a better understanding of the sort of thing that they are, they feel they're protesting against. But, uh, you know, unless I knew that they actually gave it some serious thought and stuff, if I just saw an NFL player kneeling on the field, I wouldn't take that as a significant show of disrespect. I mean, yeah, they're protesting something, but maybe some of them believe that they're protesting in the name of improving the country. Why not see what it is they're protesting about? See if it's something that you take seriously. Some of them, you know, they have the the cops or pigs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, you know, it's it's ridiculous. So funny. I was just talking and somehow I set my Siri off. That's pretty funny. And and it started making a transcript of of my uh, of my talk here. In any event, yeah, so I disagreed with the assumption of the question and, and went back and forth. Um, but, you know, people are so accusatory when I come out here and I criticize what I see as an improper way for a president to, to speak to people. He is throwing his authority around. You know, like I said, cynically, we could say he's maybe distracting people, but, you know, take him at his word that he actually thinks he wants these NFL players to stand and show respect for the flag. This is not the proper means of doing that, if that's truly what he's interested in. And I would think that he's old enough to understand that as well. That's what I would think. Um, Let's see here on in the chat room. Rob is giving me a link here. He says, 
President Trump emphasized Monday that a new Boeing deal with Singapore is going to create 70,000 U.S. jobs. Otherwise, we will cancel the order, Trump joked, according to Poole reports. Uh, yeah. You know, he's he's going to get his way in various ways, and they're not necessarily the proper way for government to function. Yes. Um, Government is not supposed to be in the business of creating jobs. Government should just get out of the way and allow business to create jobs. But, of course, he wants to go out there and take credit and and everything else. Okay. So that's that's with Trump. And, and I just urge people, please don't be cynical about Trump. You know, don't – you may still think that he's going to be good for the country. Maybe you still think that. But – can he really be that good for the country if we hang back and don't actually hold him to task as well? Even if, even if you do think he's going to be good. I, I don't anymore, but even if you do. Uh, the next thing in the program notes is this panel, Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin, Ankar Gatte on free speech. And one thing that I wanted just to, to mention briefly that was connected to this thing that, you know, that Trump tweeted you know, poor Ankar, right? Ankar, he's an objectivist. He's, you know, one of the top objectivist scholars, if not the, uh, who's out there actually doing scholarship and stuff right now. Great thinker. I've just always loved everything that I've gotten from Ankar. And he's sitting there. Jordan Peterson is some sort of deep level pragmatist at almost like the metaphysical level or something. And I, I still don't fully understand all of Jordan Peterson's, you know, philosophical foundations, but I know that there are significant differences with objectivism. Uh, Dave Rubin, he is a great classical liberal, but on some things, of course, he doesn't agree with objectivists either. We don't expect it. And so Ankar is sitting in a panel with these two. Of course, Peterson's supposed to be the focus. He's the more of celebrity there, and he's excellent. And it, on all the stuff that he's talking about here, he's, he's really excellent. Occasionally, there's you know, a premise that you disagree with or something and you want to explore. But I'm just imagining being on car sitting and there were a number of places where you would love to hear on car come in and jump in and disagree or say something. And of course he couldn't because it's not his show really. He's, you know, he's there and he, he said some excellent things when he was given the opportunity, but it's not his job to, you know, go in there and be the, the, the guy. Everybody wanted Peterson in the Q and a, almost all the questions went to Peterson and you, you know, you don't blame them. He's got, I'll tell you the wonderful thing that I love from him in, in a minute, but there was one thing that Ruben said, and it was about Trump tweeting that I wanted to hear on cars perspective on. And I want to actually, I think I'm going to write him an email and, either see if he'll answer or come on the show and talk about it. You remember Ankar published a piece about how Trump's election was one small step toward a dictatorship. Was it a small step or was it a big step? I can't remember. Um, but he explains why he thought it was a step toward dictatorship in our, in our country. And I have spoken in the past that I'd love to hear Ankar update on this. Ruben, at one point, he was talking about Trump tweeting about the NFL and, and other stuff. And also, you know, the the press, right? Because Trump has, in effect, threatened the press with changing the law to either expand the equal time rule. If you expand the equal time rule and then people decide not to give him coverage at all, 
is he then going to resurrect the fairness doctrine, right? There's been this this talk out there, and a few times he has explicitly talked about either taking away FCC licenses from the news media companies, expanding the equal time rule, say, even on a nighttime talk show. Someone like Jimmy Kimmel is going to have to give equal time to jokes that are in favor of Trump or, you know, against the Democrats and in favor of Republicans or whatever, you know, equal time. So Rubin says in the panel at one point, you know, going in between the panelists and questions and everything else, Rubin says, well, if Trump was actually passing a law, then I would have a problem with it. But with the tweeting and stuff, I don't have a problem with it. And I would think that Ankar would probably also check that premise and, and agree with me more, I, I'm assuming. But I would love to hear his perspective. You know, I, I didn't expect him necessarily to challenge Ruben in that context. Ruben just says, hey, you know, if it was really a law, then I'd think it was wrong. But if it's just tweeting, it's no big deal. I'm sorry, I disagree. I do think that when a president is tweeting that there is this implicit threat, and it's the same thing as when a president calls a bunch of business leaders around for a meeting, you know, to talk about what they can, quote, voluntarily do to do the things that he wants done without having to pass a law. What's in the background? If you don't do what I want, there's going to be a law. That's what's in the background here, in my opinion. Now, you may not believe that Trump ever has the intention of doing it, but that requires you to somehow divine what he's going to be doing in the future. And I'm sorry, I can't do that. He has no principles. So how can you divine what he's going to do? I, I can't. You know, he, call, he talks about calling up Chuck Schumer and making deals with him. He deals with Iran. He has at least stupidly sat by and let the Iran, you know, the Iranians orchestrate this whole betrayal of the Kurds in, in Iraq and everything else. So he will betray important values. He will do it because, A, sometimes he just doesn't have a well-thought-out policy at all, and B, even if he's you know, thinking it out, he's not thinking it out in a principled way. He's talking about, you know, like, for instance, I'll just give an example. He, this morning he tweets about the 401K, right? They're, they're doing the tax plan, the 401K. And he says it's a really popular program or whatever. That's his thought process. It is the pragmatist thought process of satisfying demand, right? That's what he understands. It's like, what's going to make him popular? What, you know, in, in his UN talk, he talked about what sort of, you know, the, the reputation of all the people there was going to be like, what, you know, what's public opinion of all those people going to be? Polls, satisfying demand, I guess satisfying his whims of the moment, but you know, he wants to be liked. He wants to be regarded positively. And so he's going to do what he thinks is going to be popular, not what's going to be right. Craig in the chat room says, Trump understands something. Do you think he's capable of understanding anything? I think he's capable of understanding some things, but he's certainly not capable of understanding what the proper role of a president is in a country that's supposed to be based on limited government. He thinks you can make America great with emphasis on the word make which is completely wrong, completely anti-American. Anyway, so that's my one little uh, piece of that Clemson talk 
that just has to do with with Trump. You know, would Ankar, like me, criticize Trump's tweeting even though it is not tantamount to, um, you know, legislation? It's not legislation yet. It's just tweeting. And I think, no, there's there's something more to it. This is government action. It has a chilling effect. I know that there are some serious constitutional scholars who agree with me. So, for example, I have the privilege of being retweeted on this stuff from Timothy Sandifer from the Goldwater Institute, who is a great scholar, awesome, awesome thinker. I really like him. He's a lot of fun, too. So I'm, I'm not alone in this, but I, I would like to hear on Carr's view. So let me get to the thing that I wanted to say. Oh, it, it is it is the top of the hour. I guess I should do a quick musical break. What I'll do right after this break is I'm going to talk to you about something that Jordan Peterson said during that Clemson panel that ties into this theme of don't let it go, don't get cynical. And in effect, he may have in that panel hit on the reason that many people do get cynical in their lives. So that's my little teaser. And I'll give you a little music, take a sip of water, and I'll be back. Okay, everybody, I am back. And as I said, I watched this excellent panel that C. Bradley Thompson through the Capitalism Institute there at Clemson hosted. And it was a really nice event dedicated to free speech. Dave Rubin was the host slash moderator. And then we had Ankar and Jordan Peterson, who actually spoke the, the bulk of the time. And here's the thing. I, I would recommend just go ahead and watch the whole thing. It's just a delight to watch this and intelligent questions from the students and everything else. And it's really great to see that events like this are going on, that someone who has such an audience like Dave Rubin is participating in this sort of thing and thinking about and you know, free speech is such a cornerstone of a society that ever hopes to improve. Um, there's all sorts of great things. And the thing I want to talk about in, in here is they got into this discussion about self-censorship. And Ankar made what I think is a really uh, interesting point. He talked about, yeah, you know, it's wrong to censor yourself, to not speak out, except in a certain limited context. And the exception that he drew was suppose you decided you were afraid to speak out against Islam today because you have observed that our government, which is supposed to be protecting us, has decided that it's not going to protect people who speak out against Islam, people who, you know, draw Muhammad or do what uh, Robert Spencer is doing all the time over at Jihad Watch and everything else. If the government has made clear that it's not going to provide protection for you, if you decide that you're not going to speak out in a particular way forcefully and everything else, then, you know, again, let's put your let's take the analogy back right to the the person, the woman who is the victim of the physical assault. You know, again, who are you to tell her that she has to speak out in a particular way, a particular time, everything else? 
if our government is supposed to protect freedom of expression, freedom to say blasphemous things, and it doesn't, if it's shown time and again that it is not there for you, it doesn't have your back, then if you choose to do that, then then no. But if you're in any other situation where you are not under some sort of imminent threat, that government is still protecting your right to, to speak out on various issues, then speak, right? If, if you engage in self-censorship, that what you're doing is you are crippling your ability to think. And, and they talked about the importance of speaking and expressing yourself for your thought process. And then Peterson, he was speaking to college students, so he was tailoring the comments to that particular context. But he was saying, you know, suppose you're in a class. You're in a classroom and at all the colleges, universities across the country, maybe across the world, there is this liberal bias, leftist, hostile leftist bias even, there was a, a show recently, I, f- I forget which excellent host did it. One of them was interviewing Camille Paglia, and I wanted to watch it and I haven't watched it. But she was talking about, you know, the worth, I, it must have been Ruben, talking about the worthlessness of women's study majors. Because then Ruben was able to talk pretty authoritatively about it because of having spoken with her. Um, you know, that, that in effect, there's all sorts of leftist ideas or was it Peterson with Paglia? I can't remember. One of those two spoke with Paglia, um, and I want to watch it. So, you know, they they were talking about just this leftist bias. And, and a lot of students go in, and they say, well, I'm going to write a paper and tell the professor what he wants to hear. I'm going to write a paper that, you know, pretends to embrace the ideas that I think the professor holds and apply those ideas and everything else. And I've had this as as a professor I have had, believe it or not, I've had students who figure out I'm an objectivist and they'll either write in an exam answer, like an essay answer on a law school exam, or if they're writing a paper or something, they'll give me the paper they think I want to hear, <laughs> which is funny you know, for me to be in that situation. But normally it's objectivists or non-leftists of all sorts who will go into a college environment and think, okay, maybe I just need to write the paper that the professor wants to read. You know, just just be so-called yes man for the, the professor, just reinforce his ideas and everything else. And Peterson talks about how damaging that can be to someone, that if you write a paper that you don't truly believe in or subscribe to, that it damages you, it belittles you, it gives you the reputation with yourself that you're less than you're, that you are, really. Um, and to a certain extent, he talks about the fact that if you write this paper, in a certain way, you have to make yourself believe it. So that, that was the piece where I was saying, you know, Trump is on to something in the sense that if he makes these players stand up for the anthem time and again and time and again, and they have in their mind that doing that is a show of respect, that maybe there's going to be created this, you know, sort of indoctrinated show of respect in their minds. You know, he, what Peterson is saying is that you might, through your self-censorship, almost indoctrinate yourself to adopt these leftist ideas that you at first, when you came in, you rejected. And you say you're just doing it to make your professor happy and get a grade and whatever, but it's truly damaging to yourself. 
so I would recommend listening. I wish I could give you an actual timestamp of where that is. If anybody knows the timestamp of where that is, and, and you can throw it in the chat room, you go ahead and let me know. But I would watch that entire event. If, if I were you anyway, I'd watch it. But that was, I just thought, a great comment. For me personally, you know, I went through a PhD program, PhD in philosophy, and that's the one case where a lot of people have talked about being in the closet as objectivists and not speaking their mind and writing the paper that they think that the professors want. And I never did any of that. Uh, there may have been times that I unwittingly accepted some premises that I heard in class because I think it is sort of impossible to have your guard up all the time about everything that you're being taught in classes like this, you know, hours and hours and hours sitting there. But I never had the idea that I was going to hide who I was, that I wasn't going to say exactly what I thought or anything else. And part of it was, here I am, my name was Amy Peekoff, and I was married to Leonard Peekoff, and people could look me up, and they'd know I was anyway. So, you know, what's the point? But nonetheless, that's never been me. Um, I, I sort of had that as in my mind as, well, they would know who I was anyway, so I'll do what I want to do, which is just be myself. And very glad that I that I did. You know, I figure if you know if if you aren't wanted for what you have or you aren't valued for what you have, then it wasn't an opportunity that you wanted anyway. I did the same thing when I was on the job market. Didn't hide that I was an objectivist. And sure enough, I've gotten this really nice position at the Air Force Academy, even though I was totally out of the closet. And even though, yes, even at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, liberals were at the heads of the department and stuff. But, you know, be myself, show my research and go out there and and teach and do the best job that I can. And that's, that's what I did everywhere. So I'm very, very glad that I did that. Um, Anyway, I thought that was good. But but this is the thing. I think that it will make you cynical over time if you refuse to speak out, if you refuse to speak your mind, to be yourself, to say what it is that you think in a particular circumstance. There was a funny thing. I just was just reminded. Uh, I believe Sonny Loman posted it. It was from Louis C.K. the other day. It was something like, don't do what you don't love because it's going to be terrible. Or <laughs> you know, um, Why... You know, why why do that thing? Why write that paper that you don't believe in? Oh, I, here's one thing I was going to say. Um, how did I get by? How did I get by in philosophy? Being out of the closet, I'm this objectivist, this crazy objectivist. How is it that they let me get a PhD? And oddly enough, I think part of it um, is because I was the math major, Right. And here's why. So I took all these upper level math classes and it's not that I performed top, top at all. And in fact, when I took, I took one graduate level math course and I struggled miserably and um, I got a B, which is like horrible in grad school. You know, I, I did okay, but yeah, in any event, I did learn something, something sunk in through all of my math major. And then when I went into USC I took a symbolic logic class and symbolic logic class is one of these things where it makes the discussion of anything needlessly complicated because instead of just talking about philosophical propositions, philosophical statements about whatever is or isn't true about 
the nature of the universe and man, our relation to the universe, whatever it is you want to talk about. In symbolic logic, they put all these symbols and everything to it, and they purport to do all these proofs and everything else. So it's this whole mess. It's huge to, you know, it's like a whole context that you have to absorb and digest and figure out how to work in with all these symbols and the logical operators and everything else. And because I was a math major and because I'd had some exposure to this and had some success dealing with it, I aced that class. I just aced that class. It was pretty easy for me. Why? Because it's just math all over again. And I'd been this math major. So luckily enough, even though I was completely out of the closet, I was able to impress the right professors enough with my ability to perform in that required class. You have to take symbolic logic at USC if you're going to get a PhD. And then I also happened to do well in Kant because I'm a geek and, you know, a couple other challenging things. Just go there, you know, prove yourself. You disagree with them. You state what you think, but you do it respectfully and you have the discussion. Um, You don't always have to write you don't have to choose to write the paper that's going to put you directly in conflict on the most you know, horrible topic that you have between you and the professor. You can choose something that you're honestly motivated to do that will let you be yourself, but at the same time, not completely outrage the professor. Um, if you're really motivated to do that paper, that's really going to challenge the professor, do that too. Um, my funny story on that was, I had a professor, you know, for Aristotle, I wanted to take Aristotle. I, I, I was not a philosophy major undergrad, so I would have loved to have more Aristotle in graduate school just to get some formal study of Aristotle in. And it turns out the Aristotle guide that they had there at the time was only doing Aristotle's metaphysics Zeta, which is this pretty, you know, abstract and, and technical metaphysics and stuff. And the guy, he had his own sort of pet out there interpretation of it. And he, there was him and there was this other guy. I can't remember right now either of the names, right? But there's him and this other guy and they have these competing interpretations of metaphysics data. And we're the students. We're supposed to read both of these and write a paper and, and say what we think about this and stuff. So I write a paper and I really went to town on this paper and I ended up disagreeing with the the professor and I agreed with the other guy and you know I didn't have so much skin in this game it's a really abstract issue in Aristotle and it probably would have had some implications but it's not like you know I'm be coming out for socialism or something but you know nonetheless where what am I going to do I'm always going to follow where the logic leads me what I actually think is true and so I wrote this paper up very carefully talking about why I agreed with the other guy and I didn't agree with my professor explaining my whole argument and everything else. And I swear he gave me the paper back. He gave me an A, but I swear he had not read the paper. There's no, I got absolutely no comments at all. And I was interested. I wanted to hear whether he thought my argument against him was good and kind of have that back and forth and everything. But instead, no, as far as I could tell, he hadn't read the paper he gave me an A, not a single comment on it. It was so sad. But, yeah, that's the sort of thing I did in school. Uh, selfishness was saying, why didn't I think of this when I was a student that yeah, that Peterson talks about? P- you know, again, Peterson's a psychologist. 
So he, I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you for sure he's right or everything, but he's talking from a psychological perspective based on what he knows of the studies and what this sort of thing does to the mind. And he's been so excellent on so many issues, and yet he's got this philosophical foundation that I should probably get into more because I'm interested at least to see where the points of disagreement are between him and objectivism. But he's been so excellent on so many issues in the realms of, in the realm of culture and politics that, and I bet he's really excellent on psychology. And, and you know, that's true to a certain extent, right? To the, you know, don't, don't do the thing that you know is wrong consciously, right? To the extent that you keep doing that, you ruin your reputation with yourself. Don't write the paper that you don't believe in because it's going to make you think less of yourself and less of your ideas to a small extent. You're going to start believing those untruths that you write and everything else. It's, it's, it's wise advice. And is that the sort of thing that makes people let it go, that makes them cynical, that makes them seek, you know, stop seeking to improve themselves or pass judgment on the culture and stuff because they've lost confidence in themselves from, from doing things like that. That's really the question. Selfishness in the chat room says that it's important to hear the arguments or lack of arguments that the opposition has. It, it definitely is. Um, and I, when I go out there on Twitter and I put arguments on Facebook, if I have not seen the argument a million times before, I do attempt to confront it. And when I have more time, of course, engage in some Q&A with, with people as well. Try to get clear. I've got someone on the line. If you did want to talk, go ahead and press the one key. Otherwise, I'm going to go on to the next bit of cynicism that I've got in the program notes. And it's this story. Here's this one from New York Times. Hopes dim for congressional Russia inquiries as parties clash. And in essence, they're saying, look, there's these committees in, I guess, the House and the Senate, the two different ones that have been investigating whether Russians have tried to interfere with the election and whether there's been some sort of, um, you know, complicity, collusion with the Trump campaign. That's what supposedly they are investigating. And the New York Times is talking about how these investigations are sort of petering out that they're maybe not going to go much further and there's a lack of funding and then there's these you know political clashes back and forth they talk up the republicans complicity in the failure of these committees to to actually make any progress and that maybe you know that the, the investigation's not going to go anywhere so you might say okay well so why is the new york times doing this well they on the one hand, you think, well, they've been wanting this Russia inquiry, so they're just saying this is sad, it's terrible that the Republicans have been sinking the hopes of, of these committees getting anywhere, of learning anything about Russia's involvement in the election. Um, is that the reason that they're doing it? And yet you may have heard recently that there is another story that is related to this, Perhaps, and it's this, that they are starting to uncover Russia's involvement with the Clinton Foundation. 
So, for example, here's this story. It was published on the 19th of October last week. Did Russia send money to Bill Clinton's foundation, like Trump says, fact-checking the president's claim? And it's this whole article, and it goes into some great detail about the relationship between all the various entities and how money went from one place to the other and everything else. But let me give you the kind of punchline at the end. They say Bill Clinton did receive $500,000 to deliver a speech at a Russian bank that was promoting Uranium One stock, according to the New York Times, and the company's chairman donated $2.35 million to the foundation in four installments. As Uranium One was being acquired, there was this whole uranium deal, right, that gave Russia control over a significant chunk of uranium in the United States. So they say all told, $145 million went to the Clinton Foundation from those linked to Uranium One and Eurasia, this other entity. But they say... It went to the charity organization and not the Clinton family. And they say, furthermore, most of those donations occurred before and during Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign, according to the Post. And then what is the assessment of Yahoo News? Assessment. Yes, the foundation received money and Bill Clinton was paid to give a speech, but there's no evidence the Clintons were paid by the Russians to push through the uranium deal. That is the most twisted assessment ever, and this is something I'd posted on social media, and people are going, oh, yeah, right. Um, if the roles were reversed, right, if this was some Trump foundation and the $145 million stuff, you know the news would be reporting this differently. So they give you the facts. $145 million goes to this foundation, but you're supposed to believe that it didn't significantly benefit the Clinton family in any way that influenced the uranium deal, which is pretty ridiculous. So here's this story. It's surfacing. Yes, some of the mainstream news media, this is Newsweek that Yahoo redistributes. This is a Newsweek story. They seem to be trying to bury it to get you to believe that even though the foundation received $145 million, that that's not any evidence that they were trying, you know, that the Russians were trying to push through the uranium deal. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, yeah, so what is it? There's a Russian, a state-run Russian company that now has 20% control of uranium in the United States. 20%. Because of this deal. And probably because of the foundation and the influence that they got through that. So, Go back again, if we go back to the New York Times story, maybe the New York Times is okay with the inquiry shutting down a little bit. And it could be that not just the New York Times, but the Democratic lawmakers are also okay with this, that, you know, again, it all comes back down to left, right, Republican, Democrat, parties, business as usual, let's all set aside the idea that it is wrong for Russia to buy influence with American politicians in order to, you know, take over uranium or do other things in the United States. Let's set aside that principle. And if it doesn't serve our purposes as Democrats right now or as leftists at the New York Times, 
yeah, the inquiry is going to die down, but maybe it's a better thing that it does. What the New York Times seems to be doing in this politics piece today is saying, yeah, it's dying down, but let's pin the blame on the Republicans. And that's what they do when they talk about Gowdy's role in a particular thing, and then they talk about other things. Um, What is true, though, is that Gowdy, there's quotations from Gowdy that if they are accurate, are very cynical as well. So they talk about what, you know, the, the conclusions would be in the investigation and everything else. They talk about, you know, people going back and forth, criticizing each other. Um, Mr. Gowdy had said on Friday that he was compelled to weigh in about Kushner and stuff by the Democrats' repetitive and meandering questions and that a transcript would show his own questions have been appropriately aggressive. And then he says, the Republicans said it had become clear where the committee was headed Will our private conclusions be the same? Yes, Mr. Gowdy said. Will our public pronouncements be the same? No, of course not. This is politics, he added. Now, if you say this is politics all the time, and you just say, okay, well, it's politics. I'm just cynical about it. Whenever it's politics, you don't expect people to tell the truth and everything else. You're, you're doing a little bit of exactly the thing. Right, that you're doing with Weinstein. You're saying, okay, that's business as usual in Hollywood, and you know, it's a whole bunch of leftists in Hollywood, and you know, we don't necessarily care about them as victims. Gowdy, to a certain extent, here just by saying, okay, well, it's politics, and so therefore, of course, this guy is not going to deem my questioning aggressive enough or anything else. You're just accepting that, you're accepting the idea that politics means you can never be objective about a particular situation that when it comes to politics, people are not going to say exactly what they think when you talk about Trump, that you should take him, as they say, seriously, but not literally. We we can't give up standards in any arena. And I know it's hard because a lot of times, you know, particularly in realm of Trump's tweets and everything else, right? There's, there's so much going by that there is no way people talk about, Oh, well you, you tweet answers to every single thing. He says, I don't, there's no way you could, you'd have to spend your whole day trying to think of the right answer, the exact right answer to everything he says. You have to pick your shots and do your thing, but never have the idea that it's futile, that you shouldn't speak up, that you shouldn't, as Rand talks about, fight for the future, fight for a better future. And even from Gowdy here, Gowdy, who's supposed to be better, one of the better ones, very, very cynical, very cynical. And maybe a little partisanship when in the story in the beginning, he's telling Kushner, you know, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? That if, if you stay here, then they're going to keep you for a week and it's not going to get anywhere. But if you leave, they're going to say that you're hiding something and the blah, blah, blah. Very, very cynical. And from the better politicians, it's, it's, it's tough to see. I only have a couple minutes. So what else do I have in the don't let it go theme, in the being not being cynical? Ted Cruz, a pressure point for North Korea, he argues for relisting North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism, that they should be relisted, redesignated as a state sponsor of terrorism, talks about how 
they were unlisted for, you know, again, cynical, pragmatic reasons, and the meaning of doing that, that it's an appropriate thing to do. And I would put that in the category of not letting it go, of saying it, it is important whether we designate a state sponsor of terrorism as such, not just because of the consequences, but I think also just because it's important to state the the truth and pronounce moral judgment in these situations so that you realize also in your own mind primarily that there are standards and you're going to continue to hold yourself to them as well and improve and and everything else. It's it's all of a piece. Um Big data. I'm going to have to talk about this story next time because I won't do it justice now. Big data meets Big Brother as China moves to rate its citizens not giving up on this particular battle with respect to Carpenter in the United States so it doesn't happen here. That's going to be a big thing. I'll talk about that next time. Uh, In the program notes, I've got some Duran Duran I've been revisiting lately. What happens tomorrow? It's just a benevolent song, again, about not giving up even though the news would have you think that all of mankind is is corrupt and everything else at the end um don't let go he says a couple times it's not don't let it go but it's don't let go it's pretty good i included faster than light just because it was an old favorite that i love and you might find it as well i put the whole the whole playlist that i've put together so far duran duran playlist on apple music for people who have it or even if you don't you can still see what the list is you can criticize my choices if you are a Duran Duran fan next time, but believe me, I've got my Duran Duran credentials, which I'll wax on a little bit next time as well. But check that out for now. Enjoy, everybody. i got to go. I'm going to talk to you on Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 Pacific. Thanks for tuning in, and see you then. <laughs>